Well, that is is a great story. It, it is. Uh, it, it appears in in various forms. You mentioned Ken Burns, mm -hmm. uh, certainly in the Killer Angels. It uh, is it too good to be true? Well, mostly, but like a lot of myths and legends, there's usually some kernel of truth at the bottom of it. And the fact is, the 20th Maine was in a precarious position on the end of the Union line on its left flank. Uh, the numbers, however and we've kind of pulled records on every single soldier we could find, is that they were probably about evenly matched. There were probably about as many Alabama troops as there were 20th Maine troops on the hill. And that after fighting for a considerable period of time, uh, the 20th Maine did charge, but the charge was, according to the folks who were in it, more of an accident than anything planned. Uh, the Chamberlain did not, as the movie um, demonstrates, call all of his officers together and draw a play in the dirt like a Sandlot football game and send them all back um, to perform this charge. It just sort of happened, as most military combat things do, by circumstance. And uh, the phrase textbook military maneuver is relatively recent. That's a phrase that Ken Burns coined in his movie. And it sort of makes sense if you think of Chamberlain as a professor then he must have read a textbook in order to get this military maneuver. But there were no textbooks, and this maneuver is not in any of the Army manuals. So um, thanks to Ken Burns, it, it sort of got more solidified as this preconceived notion. Chamberlain, however, spent his whole life saying, I didn't order a charge. He said I was about to. He said it caught in my throat. He said if I had, no one would have heard me. Um, but he admits that although he was preparing them to conduct a charge. It never, he never really was able to cause it to happen because it sort of happened by accident before he had a chance to do it. Now, the, the one reason why this is such an important story or why it, it lives so long is because Chamberlain's regiment is the last one on the Union left flank, and part mm -hmm. of the traditional story is that had the 20th Maine given way, had Little Round Top fallen into Confederate hands, this would have unhinged the Union position on the battlefield. It would have caused the Army of the Potomac to retreat in disarray. would have been a victory for Lee's army. would have led to possibly the fall of Washington or Baltimore or sure. Philadelphia. It yeah. would have led to foreign recognition. would have led to the Confederacy uh, being permanently established. Mm -hmm. So Chamberlain is, is the last man between Confederate victory and, and Union victory. Right. He sort of fulfills that old archetypal story of, but for the nail, the horse wouldn't have lost its shoe, and but for the shoe, the horse wouldn't have um, prevented its rider who carried the special order who, you know, the whole battle hinged on a nail in a horseshoe sort of a thing. Uh, and it's people in, enjoy that sort of idea. They like to heap that kind of importance on a single event. They like to whittle these major conflicts of 150,000 soldiers down to a moment because it's nice to go stand at that moment and have your picture taken and think about it, and, and we often do that. And it's interesting because Gettysburg has a bunch of those moments. One isn't enough, I guess, for such a big battle. <laughs> but the the fact is that the, the front of Little Round Top today is still as about as bare of trees as it was in 1863. And if you stand up there, you can see forever, even on a humid day when there's kind of cloudy. And, and you get this sweeping view and, and sense that it's a hill that does dominate the area where the battle was fought. The prob There are two major problems with the concept that if the Confederates had brushed the 20th Maine out of the way, they could have run up the hill. There's a bunch of them, but in particular two. 
One is that the hill is not shaped. It, it's shaped almost sort of like a hot dog in that it's sort of long and skinny. And when you stand on the surface, you do have a great view, but it's of the Confederate lines, not the Union lines. So that if the Confederates had gotten to the top of the hill, they would have been easily been able to bombard their own troops. But to turn and fire up the long, skinny shape of the hill toward the Union Army would have been almost impossible. So this sense that they would, you know, could have bombarded the Union Army into submission is the often used quote from the top of this hill. It's just it's physically not possible to place artillery on the hill in the direction of the Union Army. Well, it would have been hard to get artillery up there in the first place. At all, right. If they could have found artillery, they had some to spare. Someone could have recognized that, gotten word to the right commander who could have ordered the right artillery. Who, You know, there's so many if, 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 ifs. Um, but assuming artillery could have been plopped out of nowhere and dropped on the top of the hill at exactly the right moment, they still would not have been able to fire more than a handful of guns at the Union Army. And on the third day of the battle, they fired 150 guns at the Union Army right at the center before Pickett's Charge and were unable to make a hole in the Union Army. So the idea they could have destroyed it with six guns uh, on the second day is obviously a bit far-fetched. But the second major problem with that idea is while George Gordon Meade, the commander of the Union Army after the battle, said if we had lost Little Round Top, we would probably have been forced to, to leave the battlefield. But And then that quote had become the basis of, you know, that was the key. However, what he didn't say, and if he had been asked, he probably would have. He probably would have said, I'd have tried to take it back first before I just ran away because I saw a guy in a gray suit up on the hill. And in fact, there were at least 10,000 Union troops within a few hundred yards of the hill with nothing else to do at that moment. So that if the Confederates had taken the hill, say the 15th Alabama, that opposed the 20th Maine, and marched to the top of Little Round Top, they would very quickly have been destroyed and swallowed up by this massive uh, force of Union troops being sent to that area. Um, so even if they had taken it, they wouldn't have been able to hold it. And the idea that from it they could have bombarded the Union Army into submission is is just far-fetched. But again, it makes a good story that we all want. We want to go stand at the spot and have our picture taken and mail it to our relatives and say, I was at that spot where our nation was saved. And, and um, you know, we like to be even if it's 150 years later, present at that place where such important things happen, then it doesn't always fit. We just make it more important. There's maybe a, a sense also, I would argue, in human nature that says we want to believe in human agency as mm -hmm. opposed to more more systemic causes of events. Mm -hmm. And if Chamberlain was the guy who made things happen, that fits that notion. Uh, you know, think of the events where one individual really has affected American history. We look for conspiracies. Mm -hmm. uh, it can't just be the lone gunman. It can't right. just be a crazed actor. There must be a conspiracy behind it mm -hmm. who caused this to happen because a great event must have a great cause. Mm -hmm. And conversely, here where you have a great event, there's a desire to have it be an individual right. who, who did act, uh, who, who can have some some significant control over what goes on. And a lot of what makes Chamberlain heroic, I think, in, in modern times is, uh, and popular, including with Southerners who are remarkably fond of him, um, hmm. which is unusual. As I used to say to people, you know, no one would have bought Sherman a drink in Atlanta <laughs> after the war, but no. Chamberlain was actually treated to a fairly formal dinner in Petersburg really? uh, after the war. So he was admired even by Southerners. But I think part of the reason is, 
and, and you know, while we're trying to nominate a Supreme Court justice, it's a good time to think on this. He had no opportunities for great flaws. He was never placed in charge of more than a division during the war, therefore could never make an independent decision that would cause him, say, as Grant, to be called the butcher or um, or the march by Sherman to the sea causing all kinds of destruction. So he was never under – he was always acting under someone else's order. So he can't be blamed for a great loss or some kind of a great carnage or anything, and that's a convenient situation to be in. But I think people like him because he was not a trained soldier. He was just an everyday kind of guy. A very brilliant man, and in those days, professors were not expected to go to war because they needed them back home to teach young people. We needed the really smart ones to stay behind and not get themselves killed. Well, I'm all for that. I'll, I'll yeah, exactly. And uh, so he, he could very easily, like many, many others, have simply not gone to war, and no one would have thought a moment about it being cowardice or anything else. That was the way professors were supposed to be that way. And he, you know, he sort of snuck away from the university on under the guise of a two-year tour of Europe and went and, and, and enlisted or offered himself for a commission in the army. And there's some respect for that. But he also was trained as a minister, and that – in fact, Michael Shara's uh, title, The Killer Angels, comes from this concept, he said, of Chamberlain being trained as a minister but being really good at leading men to kill other men. And that sort of uh, juxtaposition um, is, is fascinating. But it's hard to find something wrong with Chamberlain. He was – not a fan of slavery, but he was not a Boston abolitionist. So he was not this sort of aggressive, angry um, kind of personality that often turns off uh, people. He was um, a great warrior against the Confederacy, but respectful of the soldiers he fought against, and in fact ordered a secondary salute at Appomattox uh, to the Confederate Army as it surrendered to him and to the men under his command. Um, so he was never really... There's not a flaw you can pick out and say, aha, you know, as I say, with Grant, people say he was a butcher and he had too many of his own men killed. And with Jackson, he was kind of a, a quirky, strange religious man who worked his men too hard. You know, every, Robert E. Lee owned slaves. It seems like everybody from the Civil War has something you can pick on. But it's very hard to put a dent in Chamberlain's armor, largely because he was never in a position to do something uh, that you could be critical of. So that – so we can now buy the Chamberlain coffee mug and the Chamberlain T-shirt. Exactly. Other things that Gettysburg sold yeah, equal opportunity I, to northern and southern visitors. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of the other Chamberlain popularity in the last 15 years or so is that he's a new guy. No one, very few people knew who he was before, say, Ken Burns' film, mm -hmm. and then the popularity of The Killer Angels uh, as a novel. Um, and so, you know, if you're sitting around talking with your buddies about the Civil War, and you can tell them about this guy Chamberlain from this tiny state of Maine and, and what amazing things he did. You know, it makes you sort of the, the bright guy in the conversation because, you know, everyone knows who Stonewall Jackson was, everybody knows who Robert E. Lee was, and so on. But who's this Chamberlain guy? And so the, the sort of newness of him around 1990 to 95 really made him fascinating to people because somebody, you know, people have been reading about the Civil War their whole lives and suddenly there's this guy they'd never heard of but is quite remarkable. And so he kind of came on the scene at, at a good time in that respect, too. Now, we're talking about how one individual can have an impact on the battle, and that's a contrast to what uh, uh, to the way these things really work out. Uh, certainly, as you point out, had the Union lost Little Round Top, 
the Confederates wouldn't have been able to do much with it. And even to take your argument a step further, had Meade actually retreated from the battlefield, what would have stopped him from just setting up at Pipe Creek a few miles away mm -hmm. and being ready for another battle? Right. It's not as if the army would dissolve in chaos. That didn't happen to Civil War armies. Mm -hmm. But if one person doesn't have a huge impact on the battle, individuals have had huge impacts on the history of the battle. Yeah. And you talk about some in your book. Uh, right. In particular, uh, Batchelder the, mm -hmm. seems to be the – John Batchelder seems to be the major figure in Gettysburg as we know it today. Right. And no How did that ever, come about? No one's ever heard of him. <laughs> no. um, well, primarily John Batchelder became the sort of official historian of the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's probably had a more profound effect on the story of the battle than anyone who ever lived. And his qualifications for that were that he was a watercolor painter of landscapes in New Hampshire before the war. And that's hmm. pretty much all he had for qualifications. That doesn't go too far. <laughs> so, but he managed to – he was fascinated with the war, had tried in vain to paint the perfect picture of Bunker Hill. It was right after Emanuel Lutz painting um, Washington Crossing the Delaware came out around that time. And he wanted to become famous and, and make this uh, – the print of a revolution, and he failed in Bunker Hill. He was living in, near Boston at the time, and he couldn't get the men he interviewed to, to come up with a consistent story to paint a snapshot, to paint a picture. So he gave up, and a war broke out. And so he went down to the peninsula during the first year of the war, waiting for the great battle, and he would be there and sketch, make sketches and interview people and make this painting. Well, as most folks know, two years went by, and there was no great battle that, that the Union could claim as a victory. So he went home and asked the officers there to drop an email or a phone call when the big battle happened. And uh, eventually it did at Gettysburg, and he was there within seven days and spent many months studying it, mapping it, sketching it, and interviewing everyone he could get hold of uh, in hopes eventually of making this ultimate painting of the Battle of Gettysburg. So he was looking for this central spot and this, this moment when the whole thing went one way or the other. Now, up, up to now, this story, from a historian's viewpoint, this is just a dream come true. Oh, sure. Here we are. We've got a guy on the spot taking oral histories, doing interviews, sketches, getting the evidence while it's fresh, obviously keeping a written record of all this. This, this At this point, the historian is just salivating, saying this is great. Batchelder's records are going to give oh, sure. us everything that ever happened. Yeah. I, but there's I, more. Yes, and I, I don't think any historian has ever been in a better position to, to write the definitive history of a battle than Batchelder was of Gettysburg, except that he wasn't actually present. But he had more accounts and more – you know, he did everything he could possibly do to get the exactly accurate history. And eventually the United States Congress in 1880 gave him $50,000 to write this history of the battle. And Which he was a huge sum. Oh, yeah. Which, oh, yeah. In those days, that was every hotel in Gettysburg, the entire Gettysburg College campus, you know, and, and it was just a massive amount of money. Um, you could have bought all those if you'd wanted. Exactly. And even yeah. though um, Congress was full of veterans, they still gave him this money because they knew he had collected this huge body of knowledge. Uh, and they had all sent stuff, making sure they their story got mentioned in the bigger story. So people buried him, really, with accounts and stuff. And when it finally came time to write it, he couldn't do it. He discovered that there were so many different accounts of any one thing that there was no way to tell what really happened. And if he and he had developed a personal relationship with a lot of the veterans, and so if he published one account, 
which of course was contradictory to four others at the same moment, then the other three people would be mad at him because he picked one of the four and, and they were so varying. In fact, one of his great quotes was, he had gone down to try to figure out what time Pickett's charge began. So he went to visit all these veterans from one brigade to the other in the army down in Virginia in 1864. And when he came back to his tent with a frustrated look on his face, someone asked him what was wrong, and he said, I finally figured out how Joshua made the sun stand still. <laughs> and what he meant by that was that every person he interviewed had given him a different time for the for the opening of the of Pickett's charge at, at Gettysburg, and therefore the time must have stopped because everyone, you know, it happened anywhere from 11 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. And what it amounted to essentially was he would, you know, some would say it started at 11. He said, well, you know, I've, I've collected a lot of accounts, and they all say that it started at 1. And this person he was interviewing, a general or someone, would say, well, sir, I was there and you weren't, and sort of dismiss him and so on. So he could never nail down any little detail. Well, let's hit on that one. Are you... Mm -hmm. You are a professionally trained historian, mm -hmm. uh, and in graduate school, this is sort of the first thing we, we start working on, uh, is recognizing the, the, the uh, imperfection of evidence, mm -hmm. that, that there are always going to be conflicting accounts. Right. Um, for, for Batchelder, this was more than he could handle. Uh, what do you and I say about this? Well, you know, what when it comes did that, charge begin, for example? Yeah, and that, that's really what led me kind of on this journey that resulted in, in the book, These Honored Dead. People asked me the, the inevitable question if I, when I gave a tour and little round top say, you know, he says this happened, but this guy said that happened, and that guy said something else happened. And people would ask inevitably, well, what did happen? And my answer primarily was, I don't know, but I'm okay with that. And what fascinates me is the process through which we arrived at whatever this year's um, answer to that question is. You know, what did happen? Well, it was this. And if you ask certain people on the battlefield, they'll say, this happened. But in a year or two or six or eight, it'll be, no, that isn't it. Now we believe this happened. And so being unable to, I mean, even the veterans couldn't determine what had happened. Uh, my fascination is more with that process of how we go about developing what we call our history and how that interaction between people and events and, and the media and many other variables um, happens. Well, let me see if I can pin you down on this a bit. Mm -hmm. you, you have a fascinating chapter in your book about uh, the Sickles controversy. <laughs> yeah. All the Gettysburg aficionados know how Dan Sickles advanced the Third Corps right. July 2nd to a very vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. They get overrun when Longstreet's Corps attacks. Yep. Indeed, this leads to the, the scene on Little Round Top uh -huh. when Chamberlain's men are trying to rescue Third Corps. Uh, and, and Sickles is wounded in the process. Afterwards, Sickles claims that he won the Battle of Gettysburg single-handed by this unauthorized <laughs> advance of his unit. And single-legged. And single-legged after That's the battle. That's another story for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And as you point out, he, he, he kept track of that. Yeah, he lost leg. his leg but didn't really lose it, right? He knew where it was. <laughs> now, in contrast, many other scholars and many other veterans would argue that Sickles nearly lost the battle. Rather right. than serving as a shock absorber for Longstreet's attack, mm -hmm. he should have just stayed put and crushed it from an elevated position. And you show in your book how these two interpretations are, are pushed vigorously. The Sickles mm -hmm. thesis is pushed vigorously by Sickles and his supporters and gets into the literature not by accident or by historical happenstance, but by vigorous advocacy by right. Dan Sickles. Right. 